Support for Talk of the Towns comes from the Maine Community Foundation, for 25 years partnering with donors and nonprofits and communities statewide to strengthen Maine through grants and scholarships. On the web at maincf.org. It's just a few seconds before 10 o'clock, and you are tuned to WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 102.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. Talk of the Towns with host Ron Beard is up next. Good morning and welcome to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities to share what works to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns is produced with support from Cooperative Extension, the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine with offices statewide. Cooperative Extension puts knowledge to work with the people of Maine, and like WERU, whose mission is to be a voice of many voices, operates out of a sense that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, and our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio, in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be a benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. This morning, we have some wonderful folks in the studio who can help us with the, the, uh, the topic of protecting dark skies, and uh, we'll be speaking with them for the next hour. We invite you to join us uh, by uh, phone, if you'd like, um, at any point. Give us a call with your questions or comments, one 866 625-9378. Our guests are Peter Lord, who is with the Island Astronomy Institute, Anne Krieg, who's the town planner of Bar Harbor, Jill Weber, who's on the Bar Harbor Conservation Commission, and John Kelly of Acadia National Park will be joined later by Stephanie Clement of Friends of Acadia for um, the piece of, of uh, information that she might provide. So we'll start with each of our guests, asking them to um, introduce themselves very briefly and uh, give us a little bit of background on what role they play um, in their community. Anne, could we start with you? Sure. Um, I'm Anne Krieg. I'm the the planning director for the town. I've been here since 2002. Um, The dark sky issue really came up for us uh, during the comprehensive plan process. Everywhere we went, uh, whether it was Salisbury Cove, Hulls Cove, Downhill, or even downtown Bar Harbor, everybody talked about the importance of going out at night and looking up and seeing stars. Great. Jill, how about you? Um, what's your background? And, and tell us a little bit about a conservation commission, because not every town in Maine has a conservation commission. Well, Bar Harbor certainly does, and we have an active conservation commission. It's a, currently a group of seven of us, and each person tends to get kind of interested in, in one area and, and runs with that. Um, we certainly had that happen with Dark Skies. Marianne Handel was our point person on this project. And... Um, our conservation works our conservation commission works with the planning board and uh we are here to to aid the town in protecting our natural resources and that includes dark skies great john kelly from acadia national park give us a little bit of background on yourself and and uh, what role you play at acadia um i'm the park planner at acadia national park which is uh, more or less a counterpart to ann creek in the town we um uh, the park includes about 30,000 acres on Mount Jersette Island, which is about half the acreage of the island. And uh, part of my role as a planner is to, to look at um, activities and, and, and land development outside the park, as well as future plans within the park 
to um, help mitigate impacts to the resources and visitor experiences. And one of those we'll talk about today is, yes, is having sky. dark skies. True. Great. And Peter Lord, give us a little bit of background on yourself and, and uh, the new, relatively new um, institution called the Island Astronomy Institute. Peter? I'm the founder and executive director of the Island Astronomy Institute. And briefly, our mission is to promote astronomy as both an educational activity, and I think we can understand how it's important in schools and um, the role that science plays in education, but also as a cultural activity. In other words, put together an organization that addressed both of those divides. Mm. Uh, what does uh, what does looking at the sky mean to people mm -hmm. in terms of cultural response? Well, let's continue with that a little bit because people have looked at the sky for um, ever since there were people, um, and perhaps before. Um, what's what are some of the significances um, that people have drawn from? Of the night skies. Well, what you just said is one of the most interesting and compelling things to me. It's the one thing that's half our visual environment that all people on this common planet look up and are reacted to. And it isn't hard to understand that almost all people growing up in different places throughout the world have looked up and wondered and tried to explain what they see and understand that. Um, it seems like a simple thing, but over the course of human history, what we've discovered in that long process of accumulated knowledge basically was the emergence of science, uh, Galileo, Newton. So in a day-to-day -day basis, it doesn't mean much. But in terms of a common shared human response, there simply isn't something that's more human or more connective. So in one sense, it's elusive and abstract. In another sense, um, this cultural dimension is extremely profound. Mm -hmm. what, and were some, what were some of the, those early stories that people told themselves when they looked up at the, at the night sky? Well, one of the ones I've been most interested in recently is many um, people, if they go out under a truly naturally pristine dark sky, are struck by this band of, of glowing star stuff um, we call the Milky Way. And in many cultures, that's seen as a river and dark lanes, which are almost invisible in most of the country, were seen as objects. Um, the Aborigines in Australia saw emus, and when the emu was standing straight up it, uh, in the sky during the summer, it was time to go collect those eggs. Or you would see glowing patches along here, and it was the river that the ancestors went up to, to, to leave mm -hmm. um, remains behind. Um, so just seeing that beautiful Milky Way and interpreting it, trying to create sense out of the world we live in is an ancient impulse. And if we lose sight of that, we lose direct connection with others have seen and others have reacted. And that has only been lost in the last couple hundred years. Mm -hmm. Prior to that, all humans have shared that experience and tried to um, explain it in many, many different ways. Mm -hmm. Briefly, how did you get interested in astronomy as a young person? <laughs> briefly, briefly? <laughs> <laughs> briefly, I would say that as a child uh, growing up in Connecticut where it was then still dark or coming up, mm -hmm. uh, it just always was compelling and mm -hmm. fascinating to me. I rediscovered it as an adult. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, let's let's find out a little bit more about um, how, um, Anne, you mentioned that the comprehensive planning process really brought you in contact with people who said, mm, the dark scars are important to me. Um, tell us a little bit about that discovery process um, that you engaged in with, with the uh, community members of Bar Harbor. Sure. When uh, I started the comprehensive plan, I did a series of what I called listening sessions where I would just go into a neighborhood, you know, for Hulls Cove, Salisbury Cove, Town Hill, and we also did one for downtown, the downtown village. And it was, it just struck me how every neighborhood, when I said, what's important to you, why do you like living where you live, 
whether, you know, even in the downtown area, which I found most striking, that they all said, you know, they, t they love to take a walk at night and look up at the stars. And the other striking group that I heard from was actually when I met with the business community. A lot of the bed and breakfast owners and hoteliers also said that their guests come and they can't wait for nighttime because they want to go outside. And if you think about our visitor to Bar Harbor, they're mostly from major metropolitan areas in, in the, um, New England and, and the Atlantic states. So they, you know, they don't have that. They don't get to see the Milky Way. And so that we started to see this as not just a resource for our residents, but also as a resource for our visitor. Mm. And, and John Kelly, tell us a little bit more about um, how the National Park Service would look at the dark skies as a resource. Well, it's a, in terms of the history of the Park Service, um, it's a relatively new uh, awareness, and it's a, a continued growing awareness to understanding the, what is important to the resources and what's important to the visitor experience. And it's only really in the past, let's say, 10 years or so that the Park Service has formally recognized through its management policies and, and, and other uh, processes the importance of the night sky not only as a natural resource, but also as a, an important experience for visitors. Uh, Acadia is unique uh, in the park system across the country in that it's the only national park in the Northeast. Mm. And Maine is also unique in the sense that it's really the, the darkest state, has the, by far the, the best dark skies uh, in the Northeast. So that combination um, led the National Park Service, um, which has a night sky team to recognize the importance of Acadia's night sky. Um, and of course, it's a resource unlike others. Um, it's not like our trees, our wildlife, our, our geologic resources. It's something that uh, is inevitably shared by the communities. So uh, in addition to recognizing this is a, a resource that should be managed, the policies in the Park Service state very clearly that it's the Park Service's job and obligation to work with communities and neighbors um, because it's, it, it's, some, it's a resource we cannot protect on our own. We have to do that with communities. Mm. And, and uh, Jill, the, the, the Conservation Commission, when did you really get started interest, interested in this, to see it as an issue? Well, in 2007, um, we had a, a conservation summit, the Bar Harbor Conservation Commission. It seemed like every issue we dealt with, um, we started out by looking to see what other towns had done, sometimes in our state, sometimes out of state, and, and we always were trying not to reinvent the wheel. If someone had already written a good ordinance, we used that as a model. If someone had uh, looked at impacts of some activity, we used that as a starting point. And then we thought, well, island-wide, the same thing must be going on. Um, we all live in these communities that are geographically very close, but we, we tend to work very much separately. And then when you're working with natural resources, they do not uh, obey town lines. A stream flows from town to town, an animal moves over town lines. And so really, if you can integrate uh, a larger geographic area into your planning, it, you end up with something better. So we thought, well, let's invite 
other towns to a gathering. Um, let's invite conservation groups and interested citizens. The National Park Service was there. And we all got together to just talk about what we had been working on and, and try and find something that maybe we could work on together. And it turned out that uh, Dark Skies was something that we were all developing an interest in. And um, if we were going to maybe write some ordinances, we felt that it made sense to have, have ordinances that were kind of similar so that um, builders wouldn't have to learn something new when they went from town to town. And, um, and we could kind of share the work. And, mm -hmm. And it worked. Great. And, and Peter, you were part of that um, summit, as I recall. Um, and But you had kind of located on Mount Desert Island um, for a variety of reasons. But I suppose the night skies that you found there were one of those reasons. Absolutely true. And people drawn to a natural park environment to live in a, have a natural park, a national park in mm -hmm. your backyard is a wonderful thing. But to lose the, the night sky is a part of that. Not that it's the only reason, but to lose that as an element was something that I was deeply concerned with. Mm. And had had you, you grew up in Connecticut, you'd come from somewhere else, had you seen kind of this erosion of night sky elsewhere before you started the, the Island Astronomy Institute? Well, for my aerospace career, I was in the middle of Silicon Valley, California, so mm. I've seen what can happen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We've dealt with it, and mm -hmm. I've never lost my connection with mm -hmm. here or what was going on in mm -hmm. Maine. So um, you you kind of served as a as a cheerleader and a and a kind of a, a spark plug for some of this work. Uh, tell us a little bit about what you what you encountered when you came to that meeting when you began to talk with others about protecting um, night skies. Well, I can tell you that this has really been an evolving process from conversations. Um, our organization didn't say, okay, we're founded to, to take on Night <laughs> right, Sky. Right. It's really the topic and the thing that has emerged at this time. I've followed the issue for about 15, 20 years, and it really has reached, reached a tipping point uh, in terms of public awareness of what we have here. And part of that is just the recognition of the loss everywhere else uh, that makes it more and more precious and um, something that people care about. We've been working with John, oh, for two or three years now. And so this has been an, a, a building and evolving process. What is perhaps most surprising is at no point ever have we pushed or shoved in any case. It's always been what I had hoped uh, in my fondest dreams, a genuine community reaction that we would do our best to support and enable. Mm. Uh, pieces have all just come together. Energy, conservation, loss, of just many pieces have just come together. and. Uh, it, it's been an incredible experience so far. We we really, uh, I don't, I, I, maybe I'm putting words in John's mm -hmm. mouth, but we've been very surprised. We thought ordinances would be maybe years away where we would build awareness and grassroots support. And we, Jill called up and said, would you help us? And I'd said, well, I've watched the way ordinances are created. They're usually passed around from town to town and they just sort of evolve. No one has a chance to step back, mm -hmm. really do the, the work and I've got an engineering background, to think through what would it mean to start with a fresh sheet of paper. And we had that opportunity just as the question showed up. Great. I'll just remind listeners that we're talking about protecting dark skies here on Talk of the Towns. Our guests include Peter Lord of the Island Astronomy Institute, John Kelly of Acadia National Park, 
Jill Weber of the Bar Harbor Conservation Commission and Ann Krieg, the town planner of Bar Harbor. If you've got comments or questions about protecting dark skies, please feel free to give us a call at any time, 1-866-625-9378 or locally 469-0500. What was it, what was the process of starting with this clean slate? What, with your engineering background, what did you kind of say, well, what are the elements of a, a good ordinance? Well, the first part was living in Maine and really thinking about this issue and understanding how important language and how uniquely different people in Maine um, react to both someone telling them what to do, but also needing to be participatory. The language that's evolved elsewhere isn't necessarily appropriate. There's a lot of sensitivities to, to how we describe this. And an awareness that it's really genuine grassroots community involvement that's going to be very, very important. Um, so a lot of thought went into reflecting what's unique and powerful about Maine communities and them wanting to get involved in, 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 in do things and how large, complex, urban approaches aren't going to work here. Mm. Um, so the upside is that a, a community that wants to do something can mm -hmm. do far more than a community that's being told what to do. And that's what I find most exciting mm. is that that's the way this has all been evolving and working. That gives this area for many, many reasons, from our strategic technical relationship with the park to the conservation community and interested citizens, a remarkable, remarkable opportunity mm. to, to change what happens here. And what was, what was the process like from your side in terms of being the town planner, um, working on ordinances? You've worked on lots of different ordinances. What was different about this process? Well, um, it had, we had placed as a strategy in the 2007 Comprehensive Plan language to, you know, to empower the town staff to write an ordinance. Um, what was um, compelling about this, the process of writing the ordinance, was there were so many parties that were participating. We had the Conservation Commission leading it, and the Design Review Board was very dedicated to what, it. What's that? Not all towns have a Design Review Board. The Design Review Board reviews signs and lighting and uh, facades in our downtown business districts. Okay. So uh, they had seen a lot of uplighting of buildings, overlighting of buildings in our downtown, and had a concern about that. So they brought that perspective to the table. And the Planning Board had seen in commercial site plans overlighting of of commercial projects and hotels and, and places. So they also brought that concern to the table. And again, uh, the Chamber of Commerce was a partner um, in this whole process as well. So uh, what was, and that was really nice about this process was we didn't, the outreach was easy. Mm. People came to us. We didn't have to go to them for outreach. So what are some of the, the technical aspects? What causes the light pollution that prevents us from seeing the night sky? Peter, you want to start with that? What, what, what is it that, that we're doing that prevents us from seeing? What's the, what's, the, what's the technical side? One way to think about it is simply being aware of and, and thinking about how you're using light. And if you think about just what works well in an indoor situation, what, how you treat light, that you don't like it shining in your eyes, you like it directed, all the aesthetics really apply. And it, in some sense, it's simply being more mindful mm -hmm. of also having the industry provide new fixtures that are a little bit more thoughtful in how light is put. One of the things we explain to people is it's best to put light where it's needed, when it's needed, and the amount that's needed. So it's really just mindfulness of it. And um, does that, that relates to conservation as well? 
you know, limiting the amount of light we have so that we're spending less energy? It costs money to light up the sky. It's not cheap. (laughs) Right. Well, I I think of, you know, just just the fact of going from inside to outside at night. It takes my eyes a long time to kind of, or a while to adjust so that I'm seeing what I can see in the night sky. If there are lights in the way, my my eyes respond to that light and I don't see what's up there. Is that... Is that how our eyes work? It's very true, and the emerging story of the science of managing light pollution is a recognition that in areas like Bar Harbor where there's already less light, you don't need as much Mm. light to have your eyes work effectively. Take into account the natural process of the eyes, and you don't need to go to the level of lighting that's, say, in, in downtown um, metropolitan areas where there's been actually light competition. Light mm-hmm. will, your eye will adapt to light. It's a form of advertising. Um, someone comes in with a new business, business that's super bright, your eye will adjust to that. And all of a sudden, the little restaurant nearby is losing business. So this, we can level a playing field through, through an effective ordinance in a community, and businesses can win. They no longer have to compete with each other, which just creates this ratcheting up. Everybody's headed for daylight, mm-hmm. and it, it, it will drive business. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's creating an understanding and a level playing field, as some of the merchants in Bar Harbor were concerned with, is important. And emerging trends in lighting are to say that some areas are going to have different levels of lighting. Part of this is the engineering profession needs to have defensible legal rules for what's safe or isn't. It used to be one size fits all. There's a lot of work that's gone on in, in the engineering community to start to recognize these differentiations and so tailor it. That safety has to do with um, lighting um, streets, I suppose, for pedestrians and for automobile transportation and, and that sort of thing. Is that mm-hmm. what you're saying? Effective there? lighting saves lives, and mm-hmm. it's important to the business community. So we always have to approach all this very, very carefully and mindfully that we are dealing with something that's very important. Mm-hmm. Did any of you kind of discover kind of a, um, a human need for darkness as part of what, what's the background here? I mean, do, do we need as part of our cycles a, a night and a day? Um, because in the city, we never find night. We, we never experience that. And I certainly, when I go to the city, I'm a little more agitated than I am in the country. And so maybe there's that, but maybe you don't, don't have that kind of uh, background to, to, to know. Certainly, animals need, and you know, John. In terms of your 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 work with the national park, animals need a night and a day. Um, it it affects um, their their sleep patterns. Their their uh, probably their uh, all all kinds of different patterns. True, and it's uh, actually it's a uh, as a growing issue and emerging emerging issue in the park system in the in the scientific field. It's something that has a lot to be learned. Mm. Um, there isn't a, um, a tremendous amount of information about exactly what species are affected and how by these light cycles. There's some information out there, but mm-hmm. that's part of the growing understanding of the importance of having a, a dark night sky. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, I don't know, Jill or, or um, Anne, t- tell us the story of, of actually cra- crafting the ordinance and um, then, then where it went from there, because you had to have public hearings on this, you had to public ga- engagement, and I don't imagine it was a straight path. Um, is that right? It wasn't a straight path to create this? We went through a lot of iterations of the ordinance, and actually Peter was uh, instrumental in helping us with the technical aspects. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't pretend to be a light engineer. It's part of my job, so I really relied on Peter's expertise. Um, you know, and the park was a partner in, in writing it as well. But yeah, we went through a lot of iterations. I think one of the 
um, points that we really had to debate and decide upon was uh, we had as an early draft a sunset provision, which in zoning that means that at a certain point, at a date, you know, X amount of years from when the ordinance goes in, that everybody has to comply. Mm. So you have a certain amount of time where everybody would have to change their lights. And that really became um, the source of debate of the ordinance for the town. I think most people in the community felt it was important to protect dark skies, but they weren't sure that we wanted to have um, this point in time where everybody had to come into compliance. So we dropped that from uh, one of the drafts. But otherwise, I mean, it really, it w a lot of it was a technical discussion and not as much a political discussion. And what were people saying about um, the? Was it an economic argument, basically, not to have to change by a certain date? That was that was right. what was driving placing that, that burden mm -hmm. on on mm -hmm. individual property owners. Mm -hmm. So um, let's begin to imagine, um, and the ordinance is in effect now. Mm -hmm. um, what's changed as people come forward to um, begin to design their projects? What do they find when they read the ordinance about how to deal with lighting? What's what's different? Well, we find a lot more fixtures available, for one thing, um, in due in part to passage of local ordinances. And Bar Harbor is not the only town on the island that's done this now. Um, there's been a demand by consumers to the local suppliers, hardware stores, um, saying, please, please carry dark sky compliant fixtures. And that just means fixtures that shine light downward, not up to the sky, fixtures that shine light on my property and not your property. Um, it, it's, it's very common sense. It's, they're simple and they're available. And so now more of our local retailers are carrying those fixtures and more people are aware. Um, I know when we first started working on this, everywhere I drove, I, I was looking at lighting fixtures and I had never <laughs> done that before. And uh, and I, I would always, if I found dark sky compliant fixtures, I would usually ask, you know, who designed your project and how long has it been up? And, and I think that's sort of happened throughout our community. People are starting to look. And, and during the process, we put out some examples for people to look at, one of which was the uh, fee station at the National Park. And we showed the before and after pictures and when you go back to that safety and security issue um, the old pictures show the fee station the fee booths with um, very bright floodlights mm. and so the buildings the fee buildings were lit up brightly but you couldn't see anything in the surrounding area so if I had been a bad person, I could easily have <laughs> hidden behind those lights and attacked you uh -huh. as you came by in the dark. Uh -huh. With the new Dark Skies compliant lighting, the light is shining down on the buildings. It's not shining out into the surrounding landscape. And you can see lots of outlines in the shadows. And it would have been very hard for it would be very hard for me to hide in there. So the Dark Skies compliant lighting in many cases, turns out to give us more security than we had with that bright floodlighting that tends to make people feel secure, but they're really kind of masking right. um, what's going on out there in the shadows. So we're, short answer is we're seeing a lot more fixtures available. Anne, and then John? Um, one other trend I'm seeing is the design profession, the um, landscape architects and the architects that are 
doing new construction, even residential construction, which off most residential lighting is exempt from this ordinance. Right. Actually, the, those new houses going in, are I'm seeing a lot, most of them, have dark sky compliant lighting as part of their That's lighting great. plan. Mm -hmm. So they've really jumped on, the design profession has really jumped onto this and been an excellent partner. John, so th there was a, a before picture and after picture. That means that someone kind of took a look at what Acadia Park was doing and said, how can we do better? Is that right? Absolutely, and um, the park by no means is the uh, free of our own uh, non-compliance with this. And a big part of what we're doing is uh, exactly what's happening in the towns. We're developing our our own park guidelines and um, inventorying and identifying the dozens, if not hundreds, of lights that are not compliant and um, eventually developing projects and funding the conversion of those lights uh, to night sky compliant. Mm. But I think the great thing about um, this from a resource management issue for the park is that that's perhaps how the park approaches this issue. But as you've been hearing, there is really something in this process for everyone. Mm -hmm. If you don't care about the night sky, if you don't care about the stars, but you want to save money, there's a benefit there. Mm -hmm. If you don't care about saving money, but you uh, don't want glare, and you, as Jill said, you want to improve your safety and security, there's something there. So it has relatively been an easy um, process, not to say there hasn't been a lot of work and effort put into this, but relative to the other issues that the park deals with, um, this has been an incredible success, and thanks to the folks in this room in particular. Well, I think of, of uh, back when I was on a planning board, um, we often got um, the, the kind of subdivision requests, and the expectation was that the hydro company, Bangor Hydro, was going to come in and put in these kind of mercury lights because that's what's going to make it safe. And, we're, and, and at that point, energy costs weren't, particularly an issue that shows my age um, but um, so we, ha we have the legacy of all of these previous um, kinds of things that brings up I guess the question of well how do we make the transition you're not going to you know, cast in law and you're not going to say by X date everyone has to comply but what's the process is it going to be any energy, energy conservation that drives some of this change that's for the park is certainly part of it but um, you know we have this this uh, obligation to protecting the resource now that we're going to follow through on. Um, but along with that comes this great awareness of energy consumption mm -hmm. and, and mm -hmm. becoming more green even in the park. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'll list our phone numbers one more time if there are guests who, or, or listeners for instance, who have questions or experience themselves in their own communities about uh, the protection of dark skies as we talk about them this morning. Give us a call at one 866 6259378 in the studio with us are Stephanie uh, excuse me we're going to talk with Stephanie Clement in just a moment John Kelly of Acadia National Park Jill Weber of the Bar Harbor Conservation Commission Ann Creek the town planner of Bar Harbor and Peter Lord of the Island Astronomy Institute um, uh, Peter as you've watched this uh, process um, unfold um, are there particular lessons that you would say to other communities this is how you ought to you might approach this um, this kind of work um, anything come to mind there? What's unique about the process that uh, we've been involved in here is I don't look at an ordinance as an end-all be-all. Right. I look at it, the emergence of an ordinance as when enough people in a community understand the issue, have been given fair information, when they're given um, an opportunity to participate, 
the result in a democratic process is enough people saying, now we want to pass an ordinance. And those ordinances and effective ordinances is uniquely tailored to that community. Who's going to enforce it? We, we, we work very closely with the towns. What is their enforcement capacity? How is it going to be implemented? You know, how do you make sure it's working? And that's very unique and custom to community, and it really needs to come up, and there needs to be broad support for it to work. Once you've passed it, who's, how is it functioning? Is mm. it, who's looking after it? That's a lot of work. And uh, uh, so that's the thing to be aware of is avoid getting one or two individuals who decide that this is the best thing for everybody uh -huh. and say this is how to do it because the reality is what's going to work depends on mm. is intricately linked to how that community wants to manage it to be effective mm -hmm. there has to be grassroots buy-in first mm -hmm. you start with that and the, the what we're hearing is people are more than ready and willing here in maine mm -hmm. to deal with that and and understand it if you approach it that way. And that is not how it's typically approached elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And that's the big difference here. It's a broad, comprehensive, grassroots effort. Be patient. Uh -huh. These lights won't get swapped out overnight. You have to understand that it can be very expensive. Mm -hmm. If this is done appropriately, the sunset clause potentially could have cost, say, the high school. If they had to all of a sudden retrofit because of this, that could be very expensive. Um, so I step back and take a longer time approach, and if we're headed in the right direction, things will come out very nicely. And who is kind of responsible for the enforcement? Um, I suppose as, as things come forward, it's the, the planning board who reviews an application and, and makes the requirements. Um, who, who actually goes out and measures lights? Is that a code enforcement officer? It would be, but in this particular case, the way the ordinance is written, um, it only it only affects projects from here on out. Right. So it's you know the type of um, the specification of light is reviewed at a permitting phase. So someone says, "Here's what I want to do." Um, they get the permit, and then a code enforcement would say, "Did you do what you said?" You exactly. Okay. When they get yep. their occupancy yep. permit, yep. that lighting spec is checked. And you said um, again to the the details. These are not residential standards, these are more um, community um, uh, structures yep. commercial. Um, and commercial structures. And even in residential subdivisions, the planning board has been very effective, even before this ordinance went in, in working with applicants to you know, put some kind of a deed restriction on that either lights are being turned off at 10 p.m. or that the residents are using uh, dark sky lighting. Mm. So we've, we have had, uh, had a lot of uh, success with working in that direction as well. I'd like to comment on that part. It's in developing these, there's a minimum set of requirements that go to brighter lights, but a lot of conversation went into what's voluntary, what's recommended. You can't mandate a lot, but if you provide information and guidance, um, that's that grassroots response. Mm. Tell people what will be more effective. Don't force it, or, but the voluntary aspects um, are as important, if not more important, in the, the net outcome for the community. And, and Jill, that's what you were saying that way. about the, the you know the the, the uh, people who supply lighting products are responding to the voluntary side, not to the compliance side. That's Very great. Important. That's great. Well, we're joined now by Stephanie Clement by by phone. Welcome to Talk of the Town, Stephanie. Thank you, Ron. Stephanie is with Friends of Acadia, and uh, Stephanie, you also play a role with the uh, Chamber of Commerce. Um, tell us about this idea that. Um, grew out of this whole Dark Skies initiative that we might actually celebrate Dark Skies. Sure. Well, we're so happy that 
here for the first time, uh, we will be holding the inaugural Acadia Night Sky Festival, um, which will be on Mount Desert Island September 17th through the 21st of this year. And it's a partnership, really, of Acadia National Park, the Island Astronomy Institute, um, local chambers of commerce, Friends of Acadia, um, the towns, and various businesses on the island, really an effort to try to highlight our starlit communities, um, encourage people to enjoy them, as, again, enjoy natural or night skies as a natural uh, resource of our area, and to celebrate them through education, science, and the arts. Mm. And so wh- when is this happening? And, and then let's hear some details both from you but from folks around this table. Well, again, the dates are September 17th through the 21st of this year, and there will be events all over Mount Desert Island. And the best way that folks can get an access to the list of events that are planned are to go, is to go to the website, which is uh, nightskyfestival.org. Great. And, and do you remember, th- um, was this an easy kind of um, transition from a c- community-based effort to a kind of a, a community-based effort to celebrate? Absolutely. I think um, really the discussion about the idea of a festival came out of uh, larger economic development kinds of discussions that were going on in the town of Bar Harbor as a partnership between the Chamber of Commerce and also the town itself. So we started looking at shoulder season opportunities and, um, and also what are the things that we should really celebrate about our region. And again, Night Skies was a natural fit. Um, and there have been other festivals surrounding Night Skies, opportunities at other national parks across the country. So it just it seemed like a, a great fit, and there's a lot of enthusiasm about the topic. I think Ann mentioned earlier about how business owners really have seen this as a resource here in the area. And uh, so this was a, a natural way to progress to celebrate and, and help bring economic development to our area. Well, stay on the line because we're going to take a phone call and then we'll come back to this question of what's going to ha- actually happen in uh, later in September. But we have a phone call from someone. Go ahead with your question or comment, please. Hi, this is Bob from Grossboro. Uh, I, I think it's important to get Bangor Hydro involved in what you're doing, at least so they can offer customers some alternatives. I live about uh, 1,500 feet in a straight line from a light that comes on all night long. It it shines into my bedroom window in two different ways. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm sure they're nice people, and I'm sure they're not aware. And where they're only here occasionally, I don't, and I haven't met them. I haven't wanted to go up to them and say, hey, your light is a pain in the butt. But, but I think if Bangor Hydro could offer some options other than these giant yellow lights at the top of their poles, um, maybe the people could get the, what they want, and maybe the rest of us wouldn't have to endure, you know, a yellow light in our bedroom windows. Well, I'd that's appreciate that's, it if somebody would, would try to work with Bangor Hydro on that. Thank you. That's a great call. Thanks very much for your phone call this morning. one 625 We're talking about protecting night skies, dark skies um, in Maine and elsewhere, but um, um, we're using the kind of a case study of Mount Desert Island. Um, any response to this, this caller's uh, question? Have you approached Bangor Hydro as, as part of this kind of coalition, or what's their response? We have not yet. Uh, it is certainly um, within the strategic planning to do that. And I'll point out that municipal ordinances typically don't deal with street lighting for a, a wide variety of reasons. Um, I think of there, there are three pillars of controlling light pollution. 
commercial, residential, and street lighting. And street lighting is a big one, and for many reasons we haven't been able to tackle it yet. Um, a strategic. But I don't think this was a street light. This was this is one of those lights that Bangor Hydro put in back in the in the seventies, probably. My guess it's over a street, and yes, they do supply them. And remember, they're a power company. Mm -hmm. Their job is to sell power. Mm -hmm. uh, there is some interesting details and in how the rate structure works with the Public Utilities Commission and we've known that really effectively tackling this would probably be a state level mm -hmm. regulatory type of thing and uh, gearing up for that type of a program is a little more difficult than reacting to, uh, to you know, a, mm -hmm. a community that we can work within. Mm -hmm. Anne? Um, our police department actually is looking at doing um, a street light reduction uh, program in the town of Bar Harbor, uh, working with different neighborhoods to see if just turning out that street light is effective. But mm. yes, we we do need to seek Bangor Hydro as a partner in this. Mm. And John, but it's uh, interesting that the town of Bar Harbor initiated this process based on a, a budgetary savings. Mm. Absolutely. And Good point. I think the number of street lights is something uh, about 130 that may be turned off. Mm -hmm. uh, and not so much for protecting the night sky, but for saving money. But the, the results will also help to do the, the resource protection mm -hmm. as well. We have another call. Um, you can participate as well if you'd like to give us a call at 1-866-625-9378. We have a caller. Go ahead and identify yourself um, by first name and town, and go ahead with your question or comment, please. Hi, this is Bob again. Uh, same person. It just I, evidently I wasn't clear enough. Okay. Uh, this is a, a a light that is paid for by the owner of the property, and um, uh, it, it's it's not paid for by the town. Right. And it's a light that comes on, uh, you know, by light sensor. When it gets dark, the light comes on, and then it goes off. And it and it is a powerful, powerful light. Yep. It and 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 again, the people aren't here very often, so they probably feel it protects their property. And, and it just, you know, some of us just don't want to go up to some new neighbor. They've been here a couple of years, but right. I don't want to go up and say, hey, your light's a pain in the butt. Yep. I, what I, my question was, when people go to Bangor Hydro and they say, I'd like to have a light that would shine on my property for whatever reason, you know, security reasons, I'd like to know that Bangor Hydro would say, here is what we have for you, and here are some options that would include things other than the light that, That's for example, my neighbors have. Great. So I'm asking if, if there's a way to approach Bangor Hydro, uh, not through state regulations, but as your as your guests so far have been pointing out, it's best to work with people. Could somebody uh, with uh, a little bit of, of uh, uh, community uh, uh, cooperation say to Bangor Hydro, could you offer some better solutions to your customers Great. that would that would make their neighbors happier? And, and keep our skies the way they should be. Great. I hope I've explained it, and I'm sorry you, I'd have to call back. No, that's, that's right. I think I did understand that. So um, thank you again for, for clarifying. So that, that may be, as, as Peter said, that's the next step to begin to reach out to others who are, are um, potential contributors to the solution. And, and I think it's the same as with our residential lighting options. Um, once there was a demand, we got some supply, and I think... Um, it's always good to contact folks early and often if you have something you want to share. And I think the more often we ask Bangor Hydro for some options and the more often we communicate to our select people or our town councils that, that this is an issue we want to work on and, and budget in over time, that um, 
change will come. Right. So maybe, you know, one of your steps when you get back is to invite some Bangor Hydro folks to come to the festival. So, um, Stephanie, you're still on the line with us, I think. Yeah. And um, any any particular um, events that you like would like to highlight, and then we'll get some comments from our guests in the studio. Sure. Uh, the opening event is going to be a College of the Atlantic, and it, again, it's focused on sustainable tourism and the role that night skies play in sustainable tourism and what tourism businesses can do to protect this resource and so on. So that's one that we like to mention. Um, the other events, there are a number of very night sky viewing opportunities, uh, both offered by Acadia National Park and then also with some amateur astronomers. We will have the main festival headquarters will be at the Bar Harbor Municipal Building, so on both Saturday and Sunday afternoon of that weekend, uh, which I think is the 19th and the 20th, there will be several exhibits going on, um, including a hands-in-space exhibit of what a, a space glove is actually like uh, that astronauts wear. There's also, there will be some photography workshops offered um, with tickets, um, so at a fee, uh, by a wonderful gentleman, Tyler Nordgren, who is um, and really an expert at doing night sky photography. So. He'll have both uh, uh, photographs on display for silent auction, but then also will be leading walks and workshops and so on. So it really, it's, it's just a great opportunity, and I encourage folks to look at the website again, which is AcadiaNightSkyFestival.org, and um, take a look at that and uh, see about the events there. Great. So this, again, um, is part of a, um, a concerted effort to, to both celebrate the night skies, but also to pay attention to those shoulder seasons when people um, might want to come to um, Mount Desert Island, Acadia National Park, um, when it isn't quite so busy. That's correct. And I should say that we purposely chose this particular weekend because it's a new moon, so it'll be some of the darkest time of the year. And it's also September, so the nights are still relatively warm and we purposely planned activities that are both inside and outside. So just in case um, <laughs> we have one of those awful rainy weekends, there still should be plenty of opportunities for folks to come and enjoy uh, the arts and also education about night skies. Great. Well, thanks for joining us by phone, Stephanie right. Clement from Friends of Acadia. Thank you. Other events uh, coming up for that weekend that any of you would like to highlight? Are there some art things, music things as well? Peter, do you remember some of those? And, uh, an exciting event that's emerged over in Bass Harbor is a actually two-month-long display of um, artwork from local artists that already reflect the night skies. In other words, these are um, people capturing uh, their inspiration in paintings. Those will be on display. There will be music to celebrate that. There will be artist receptions. Um, later uh, in October, there will be some poetry readings. Four main poets will talk about this. So this starts to become a native, genuine response to this timeless uh, uh, inspiration, but it'll be local, it'll be real, it'll be genuine. Getting that connection uh, is exciting. It, it also, we're very, very interested in capturing the images, poetry, songs, whatever, that allow us to explain this to other people. The photographs that Tyler Nordwin took when he visited the island have been worth their weight in gold in showing people what we have here. When we write press releases, when we can show people uh, what we're talking about, when they can see it, when they can experience in all the different ways that the arts can and humanities can help explain these things, that's the story we're trying to bring out. And so the emergence of that, um, there will be artists at the Village Green that will be set up and they're starting to contribute pieces that they have. And there'll be some judging and competition. Um, 
can we capture some of those images, use those in the next year festival? Mm. Perhaps you've inspired um, some of our listeners to call and, and suggest um, how they might c- celebrate the night skies. one 625 9378 here on Talk of the Towns as we talk about protecting our night skies, our dark skies. Peter Lord is with us from the Island Astronomy Institute. Anne Krieg is the town planner of Bar Harbor. Jill Weber is with the Bar Harbor Conservation Commission. And John Kelly is with Acadia National Park. Uh, John, are there particular aspects of of this upcoming festival that the Park Service will be involved in? Yes, the Park Service has added a um, number of uh, viewing programs as well by rangers and with also with volunteers. So there'll be events listed on the website uh, throughout the park over the weekend, mm. more than our usual. Okay, <laughs> great. And um, what's been the response that you've heard about, um, Jill or Ann, in terms of, of, of this activity? You're probably in touch with, with uh, people um, at, at the community level. Are they involved as well? Well, I think there's been a, a really great response um, community-wide. Business owners are are eager to help. There's a, a great poster showing our night skies. It, it, it's really kind of an icon um, that that points up the interplay of, of the other elements of the landscape with the sky. Um, the Conservation Commission is doing something during the daytime. We're offering a tour of some uh, buildings new to Mount Desert Island that are are green buildings, they have dark sky compliant lighting, and so that gives folks something to do during the day if they're not looking at the at the art. So I think um, there's been pretty broad community support and it will it will broaden and strengthen over the years. This is a first annual. Great, great. And and Anne, back to you in terms of, of um, the use of the ordinance um, that Harbor created. Um, how how has it been working? And has it been um, used very very much in terms of of new developments coming forward? We haven't had that much um, developments coming forward, just you know probably due to the economy right now. But the projects that we do have coming forward, yeah, they come in. We actually have in the planning department um, a whole bunch of specification sheets for people for residential lighting, commercial lighting, all different kinds of lighting to help give them ideas of what kinds of lights are out there and available to them. So that has been a a big resource uh, for people as well that are planning to do some work in the future. Great. We have a listener um, who's called. Um, Go ahead with your question or comment. List your first name and town, if you would, um, and go ahead. Uh, Good morning. This is Mark. I live in Ellsworth. I'm a local educator and summertime kayak guide. I'm curious, uh, one, uh, are there any nighttime kayaking activities uh, along with the celebration, which I'm very excited about, by the way. Great. Um, any, uh, do we know about nighttime kayaking? Peter? I've been conducted, uh, contacted by one gentleman who was interested in uh, providing one of these and actually had a, a group, I think, of college students who wanted to do this. There's not one on the agenda right now. There's a, a nighttime cruise being offered out of Bar Harbor, but it's a wonderful idea and a fantastic way for people to experience the natural outdoor setting. Uh, it's a great idea. If someone were providing it, we'd certainly want to list and, and make people aware of that opportunity. And how would they contact whoever? is organizing. Is that through you, Peter? Yes. Okay. So we'll, we'll uh, list your uh, contact information towards the end of the show. Do you have a further follow-up question, sir? Yeah, I, I think that's uh, one more and a statement. Uh, I do this just on my own, and the, and the difference in light pollution on uh, the Harbor side of the Porcupine Islands, and then once you get behind them, is phenomenal. 
Mm, yes. And uh, and lastly, we also have a cabin, a camp out of Tongue Lake, and mm. the difference in night sky pollution there and in Ellsworth and in the island is phenomenal. I can see the glow of Bangor and Bar Harbor on the horizon, mm-hmm. but the, the sky is just glorious, and I'm really excited by this whole program and movement. So thank you very much. Thank you for your call. one one 625 if you'd like to comment or have a question for our guests talking about uh, protecting dark skies. Well, it's a little bit like carbon, I think. When there are people gathered, <laughs> we create things, um, mm-hmm. carbon being one of them, light being another. So um, we're congregations of people. We're going to see that kind of thing, um, and it's going to be obvious when you're not in part of that. Uh, John, you must kind of think about that as pr- kind of protecting the view sheds of Acadia. How do you do that when there are people living there? Exactly. Well, it, 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 it's not uh, mutually exclusive. I mean, the the trend now is as development progresses up the coast, um, you can actually see a degradation in the night sky quality because mm-hmm. measurements can be made mm-hmm. uh, scientifically uh, of the quality of the night sky. But that's not a necessary trend. Uh, through uh, wise use of lighting and, um, as Peter described, putting it where you want it, when you want it, and the amount you, you need it, you can have development, you can have progress, you can have economic growth without necessarily impacting the night sky. It just takes a, a, a sort of a cross-the-board effort by communities, businesses, the park, uh, to, to do the right thing, mm. but not give up lighting. Right, that's, right. Not give we're up not, lighting. That's right. We're going to have a candle somewhere. Exactly. Right. We have another call. Um, go ahead with your question or comment, please. Yes, go ahead. My name is Jonathan. Yes, go ahead with your question or comment, uh, Jonathan. I missed part of your show, but I was wondering if you had any comments on um, on the bridge, uh, the new bridge, all the lights shining up in the sky off of that, if that's visible from, it's visible from where I live a lot. Probably that's visible from space. Yeah. <laughs> and if, if there's any way that could be uh, addressed as well. I mean, I think it's obnoxious myself. Okay. But. Well, thanks for your call. It's okay. actually visible uh, with the naked eye from the top of Cadillac Mountain. Mm. And mm. it um, it does uh, in measurements that Peter and the Park Service have been taking up there, it can be identified. Um, and, and in the overall picture, it, it may not be the, the greatest impact given all the other uh, lights, but um, it is visible from Cadillac. Mm. So um, in the celebration of that wonderful architectural feature, um, no one was talking about night skies, I guess, with the design team there. Yeah. Yeah, so um, is there anything that could be done retroactively um, to, to help with that, Peter? You've, you've seen it. <clears throat> yeah, very hard. I can tell you they've redone the shielding on it at least three or four times trying to correct it. Um, I've noticed that it gets turned off um, after the, the tourism season. Uh, it, as an engineer, it's a beautiful bridge. Um, mm. I appreciate aesthetic, well-done lighting. Had it been lighted from the top, uh, it, it might have been better. Um, they actually had to put in a slight modification to a state law that makes it illegal to use state funding. This is Maine was one of the pioneers in this. State funding uh, could only be used to direct light downward for a long, long time. So they actually um, modified it to to make it um, compatible. It's a, it's a special icon and it, it deserves special treatment. I also know that people who live nearby lost a good chunk of their visibility, and this becomes. The, the, the conversation that communities need to have, there's now a balancing equation. There's this awareness that darkness has its values, 
and there's an awareness that light is important. And what's different now is that we, we now consider both sides of this. My role is to provide the best information we can on some of those choices because, as John pointed out, in many cases, you can make choices that are win-win for everybody if the information is out there. Um, I have mixed feelings about the bridge itself. Um, John's right, you can see it from a long way away, and if you lived nearby, you lost a big chunk of your sky. How much is that worth to that person? Mm -hmm. And how do we balance those needs? Mm -hmm. Great, great question. Thanks for that call. Um, We have time for maybe one more call, 1-866-625-9378, if you've got comments, questions about night skies. Well, um, if another community um, was interested in in doing this, you've already given us um, some advice. And I suppose um, even though Peter said you shouldn't carbon copy, uh, you know, an ordinance, people could certainly take a look at what Bar Harbor has done and and, uh, other other communities that have expressed interest. Well, actually, I just came back from uh, speaking about dark skies at the National Scenic Byway conference out in Denver uh, this past week, and uh, a lot of the communities that came, they were either communities that um, had a concern with dark skies, especially out in Arizona, um, where there is a a large astronomy uh, community out there, and they are very concerned about it, or there were communities that hadn't been concerned, and after talking to me said, you know, maybe we need to figure out what our existing dark sky condition is and maybe we need to start planning for the future. So it really is a national issue. It's not just something in the Northeast. Um, People are talking about it all over the country now. Peter, how would they establish that kind of um, existing pattern to know what's changing? Uh, What's the process? Well, there's a long backstory there. What I can tell you is that through our collaboration with Acadia National Park and the National Park Service pioneered a very unique technology, a very precise technology to go into a community and document in the terms of how the human eye sees things, which is not an easy problem um, across the full sky, which they are in very scientific, rigorous terms. We've been collaborating through a Measure, Promote, Protect campaign. Um, The short story is that through working with Anne and the Acadia Byway, we were the first town, the first community in the nation to have access to the national park technology to create a community inventory, a community baseline, a rigorous trending baseline. What that starts to open up is we care about the dark skies. Do you know what you've got? And are you going to keep track of how you're doing? Mm. There's a lot of excitement and enthusiasm about doing something And what we're learning is there's a big difference between doing something and doing something effective and produces (laughs) results. That's that's where things are headed into that direction. Um, Very quickly through the National Park, we have migrated into the community for the first time unique capabilities to to do the right thing in the future. Great. And how would people contact you if they have questions, Peter? First, see the website. There's a tremendous amount of information there about what we're doing and what's available. And then come to the festival. Learn and enjoy. What's the Dark Skies? What's the the website? There are two. There's the Dark Sky Festival website that Stephanie Messon, but also my organization is the Island Astronomy Institute's website where the description of the work we're doing with the park is is in many places. Great. For the rest of you, a very quick comment about your hopes for the future. John? Uh, Continue to uh, work with communities to not only protect the resource for the park, but for the entire state of Maine. Great. Um, Jill? Well, in Bar Harbor, we feel like we've done something to stem the tide of increased lighting and maybe 
as time moves forward, we'll decrease it a little bit and the stars will get even brighter. Great. And Anne Creek? Yeah, I agree with Joe. I'm the optimist. I think Bar Harbor is moving forward and I think we're going to make a lot of progress. Great. Well, we've come to that time when I want to remind you that this program was produced with support from Cooperative Extension and the Hancock County Extension Association. With offices in each county, Cooperative Extension is the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine. Our radio collaboration with WERU began in 1990 and continues with your support. Join us from 10 to 11 on the second and fourth Friday mornings of each month for Talk of the Towns. Our theme music is a medley from Coronach on a Balmain House Highland Music recording. Thanks again to our guests in the studio, Peter Lord of the Island Astronomy Institute, Ann Krieg, the town planner of Bar Harbor, Jill Weber of the Bar Harbor Conservation Commission, John Kelly of Acadia National Park, and Stephanie Clement of Friends of Acadia. Thanks of those, to those who listened and called in. Thanks especially to our underwriters. Thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our program, and stay tuned for On the Wing. This is Ron Beard, your host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good morning. Good morning.